basically, in short, I, I nearly died. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with this incident, but I was um, hiking or I guess uh, trail running in the Rocky Mountains outside of Aspen in the Maroon Bells wilderness. And uh, long story short, I really got a bad case of altitude illness and um, it was on the extreme end of the spectrum. So I actually had um, high altitude cerebral edema and pulmonary edema and hyponatremia, hypoxia. And so I was uh, basically in a coma for several days. I was, uh, there was a 12 person mountain rescue team and a nighttime helicopter rescue mission that came out to save me essentially from almost certain death uh, up at altitude. Welcome to the 55th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest attended ASIJ from his fifth to eighth grade before completing high school at St. Paul School, a boarding school in the Northeast. He then attended Yale University, receiving a BA in Ethics, Politics, and Economics in 2009. After two years teaching high school English and journalism in DC public schools through Teach for America, he matriculated at Harvard Law School, from which he earned a JD in 2014. He is currently the staff attorney at the ACLU in Hawaii, where he works to defend people's civil rights and civil liberties through litigation, lobbying, public education, and other forms of advocacy. Among the issues he works on are criminalization of poverty, bail reform, policing, reproductive freedom, gender equity, and freedom of expression. Before joining the ACLU of Hawaii, he was an associate at Quinn Emanuel Urquhart and Sullivan LLP in Washington, D.C. While there, he also maintained an active pro bono practice, including representing undocumented Latino immigrants and challenging a landlord's discriminatory rental practices under the Fair Housing Act. He and his wife currently live in Honolulu, Hawaii. In his free time, he trains for and competes in 100-mile trail races, surfs in Waikiki, and otherwise takes advantage of the many opportunities for outdoor explorations in Hawaii. Welcome to the podcast, Wookie. Thank you. Thank so you. Um, we'll talk about law. We'll talk a bit about Harvard and Yale. We had on not too long ago, Michael Thornton, who went to both schools. And I actually kind of wanted to ask you about sort of those two schools and how they compare and um, you know your background as a runner. Um, you're surprisingly not the first or the second. I think we've had a few avid runners. Um, so that that, uh, but you have some interesting stories, um, especially involving um, you know running. So um, I hope we can touch upon that as well. So yeah. um, I like to uh, yeah, I like to go chronologically and sort of start with the earlier days. Uh, you were originally at ASIJ, grade five to grade eight, golden years. Um, oh, and then uh, <laughs> grade nine to 12, uh, you made a move to a uh, boarding school, one of those elite boarding schools in the Northeast. And uh, you weren't the only one. Um, not many people leave, right, the international schools, but those who do go to the States, you know, go to Exeter, St. Paul, Andover. So I wanted to ask you, you know, that process, you know, was that change pushed by you or is it pushed by your parents or was it a combination of the two and secondly is it something you would recommend towards people who are kind of on the fence because I know my students even in grade 9 10 there there's always a few that are on the fence about do I want to go the international school route or should I finish off uh, you know in the boarding schools yeah so you know that was a long time ago I mean that was basically the end of the 1990s when um, we were considering this transition. But basically how it all came about was that my, my dad knew that his time in Tokyo was gonna be ending at some point you know, in the near future, sort of understood how disruptive it could be to move to a new country and, and change schools sort of midstream in the middle of your high school career. And so that was the original sort of reason for why, you know, we, meaning my parents and I, started looking into the idea of sort of a boarding school. But of course, there's also the additional factors of, you know, um, a lot of these schools have a good track record of, you know, getting their students into the top colleges and whatnot. So that was 
that became another consideration as well. Yeah, it ended up being a good decision, both in the sense that, you know, I mean, I loved ASIJ, and I'm, I'm sure I would have had a, a great experience in high school there. But, you know, my, my dad moved uh, during my 10th grade year, or, you know, my family moved from Tokyo to Hong Kong in like March of 10th grade. So that would have been very, you know, that would have been very disruptive uh, to the continuity of my education. And so, um, you know, and yeah, I had a, I had a great four years at St. Paul School in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, very different environment. Um, definitely as an expat kid, third culture kid who had never really lived on U.S. soil. Uh, I mean, technically I, I did. I was I was uh, lived in New York and New Jersey when I was a toddler, maybe one, one to two or zero to one, one to three, let's say, you know, I, so I live, I've lived in the United States uh, before, but that was really my first time permanently living there as a, you know, adolescent person. And so mm -hmm. that was sort of a shock because even though I'd been a U.S. citizen since birth, you know, my exposure to American culture and all of that was somewhat distant. And of course, this was the, the age of dial-up internet. And, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't as easy to stay up to speed on culture um, as it is today. And I, I, I specifically remember sort of trying to surf through all the Japanese TV stations to find any sort of English language or American TV programming like Friends or The Simpsons. Um, mm. You know, there was like Cartoon Network that had, uh, uh, you know, like Dexter's Lab and other other US cartoons. So, you know, it, that was definitely a, a, an adjustment to, to be in New Hampshire of all places. Um, so, but no, I mean, it was great. So when you, um, you know, obviously you weren't at ASIJ for high school, so I know it's kind of difficult to compare high school to middle school, but what would you say was, you know, the greatest challenge in regards to settling into the U.S.? I mean, you mentioned about sort of feeling like an outsider, but, you know, can you elaborate on that a bit more in regards to, you know, specific experiences at St. Paul? Sure. I mean, I think that just at the very basic level, Going to boarding school is not an easy, right? It's not an easy thing to do in the sense that when you're 13 years old or however old you are, you know, you're young and you're away from home, away from family. And that is definitely a challenging uh, thing to undertake, regardless of how excited you are about the opportunity. And so I, I remember the at least the first basically the first year and, and definitely the first sort of half of that first year, I was very homesick and, you know, I'd sort of call my parents and, and I'd be crying on the, on the phone late at night. And, um, and yeah, it, it was, it was, it was tough, but over time I got, I got comfortable with the lifestyle and I, I really felt like I, I found my, my place at the school and um, started to, you know, pursue new things such as um, various sports that I had previously had no interest in or, yeah, it was a, a slow, uh, it was a gradual process, but it, it ultimately worked out. And um, I think also, you know, as I mentioned, being sort of a perpetual outsider, a perpetual uh, wanderer made things also somewhat more challenging because perhaps I didn't have the same knowledge base or familiarity with sort of what other, what my classmates were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I think also it's important to note that September 11th happened in my first week of boarding school. And wow. so that in itself was incredibly traumatic. And I, I remember the exact moment it happened. I remember where I was in the ba basement classroom of the library and just going back to the dorm and seeing the, the footage. And so that compounded the, I guess, the, the quote unquote trauma of, of being away from home during such an uncertain time. And that first year was really, really strange, obviously, for reasons that you will understand, but perhaps some of your, your younger audience might not. Mm. 
Yeah, I we're the same age. So yeah, 9-11 was freshman year. It was a definitely yeah. crazy time. And I think you bring up a great point about, you know, with boarding school, I actually teach so half of my students are boarding boarders. And I think, you know, as you said, it's so challenging being away from your parents at that age. But I do feel like um, a lot of them mature really early because they have to begin fending for themselves in regards to things that maybe kids that live with their parents, the type of independence, I guess, that you, you wouldn't be able to get. So do you feel like that time at boarding school sort of made you mature earlier and had you better prefer, better prepared for your time at Yale? For sure. And I think um, I'm blanking on what our school motto was, but I was going to say our school motto was, oh, freedom with responsibility. Freedom with responsibility was one of our, I, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it a motto, but that was one of the guiding principles. I think it was really important to be in an environment where, yeah, you, you did have the independence and the freedom to chart your own path and figure things out on your own. Um, but the with responsibility aspect is, is sort of referring to the, the structure and the supports that the school provided. Um, and, you know, I don't think the school was particularly, uh, you know, um, strict or more strict than other similar peer boarding schools. But, you know, for example, we didn't have internet access. Internet access in our rooms was cut off after I think 9 p.m. each night and phones would get shut off after midnight. And, um, you know, there are certain hours where we, there's study, study hours where everyone had to be quiet. You couldn't hang out with friends during that time. So there were, there were structures and schedules in place that made it a lot easier to, you know, focus on your studies and to, to excel. So it's not like it was, you had completely free reign to do anything. Um, but of course, that, that, that allowed, I agree that definitely I became more independent. I became better at managing my own time without someone telling me to, to do something. And I think that's one of the hardest things freshmen in college have to deal with is all of a sudden not really having anyone to tell you when to study or what to do and trying to do that on your own. That would, that came very easy for me because I had done that all through high school. And I think what actually prepared me really well for even going to boarding school was growing up in Tokyo in, you know, as a middle schooler and given how, you know, safe and, and open the, the society is, I had a lot of independence in those middle school years, and we, we spent a lot of time together in those years too. If I were living in, the, in New York City in middle school or even in elementary school, there's no way that I would, my parents would let me mm-hmm. take the subway you know, for 90 minutes or however long it was and switching lines and walking from the station to the school. You know, I, I, I had a lot more independence and freedom growing up in Tokyo than I would have in probably any other or many other communities. And so I think that was also something that made it easier to be in, a, in an environment where I had more. So then you moved it over to Yale, small school, right, in, in the Northeast. There, you know, you get your bachelor's degree, you decide to go to Teach for America. So how did that sort of decision come about? Was that always part of the plan when you were in college? You were thinking, you know, I'll do Teach for America, or was it something that sort of trans, you know, came about uh, later on in your college life? It was completely a fortuitous thing. Uh, basically, you know, I started high school during the trauma of 9-11, and I finished college, just like you, at the beginning of the Great Recession. And so at the time, I had all these plans because I was following, I was on the bandwagon of many, many of my peers trying to pursue a career sort of in banking, uh, you know, banking, finance, consulting, something uh, along those lines. And I'd been going through the interview process and it wasn't really working out. And at the time, um, I got contacted by a recruiter for Teach for America. Honestly, I, I, I knew very little about the organization and, and, and whatnot, but I figured, okay, you know, I'm, he basically invited me out for coffee. And so I met up with him and heard about his experience teaching uh, in the Bronx uh, as a Teach for America core member. 
And, you know, it made me reflect a lot about my own educational upbringing and all, all the amazing educational uh, opportunities that I'd had, not only at Yale, but, you know, obviously at St. Paul's, ASIJ, and before that at HKIS in Hong Kong International School in Hong Kong, and realizing just how impactful my educational upbringing had been and how, how much of a difference it can make in your life. And so um, I really became interested in the, you know, sort of enterprise of ensuring educational equity. And so, you know, I applied and wasn't really expecting much of it. And, but, you know, I went through the process and I, I got the offer and, um, you know, I, I, I thought it would be a great, a great way to sort of be, be truly in the U.S. community, right? Because when I was at St. Paul's, when I was at Yale, I was in a bubble, mm. um, a, a campus bubble. I wasn't really a part of the community. And to, to really, for the first time, be embedded in a, in a real community and, and learning about uh, the very tough issues that we have to deal with on a daily basis of uh, inequality and um, injustice and, and everything. And yeah, and, and definitely teaching is something that I've loved in general, like wh whether, I, whether that's a, from a formal perspective, but even informally, I like to explain things to people or to, even to myself. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a very fun thing to do. And so it seemed like a, a great idea. And it was a, it was a really uh, wonderful uh, two years that I was teaching in DC public schools. Um, I learned just as much from my students as they learned from me. Um, I very much don't believe in the um, the pedagogical concept that you know students are just there to receive the knowledge. You know the the transfer of knowledge from teacher to student. I you know I think it's you know constructivist um, that the students and the teacher sort of create and construct a knowledge together um, through experience. So um, that was how I approached the, the classroom. And, and yeah, I mean, th but ultimately it was the teaching experience that prompted me to want to become a civil rights lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to go to law school, but I didn't really at the time know exactly what sort of law I would practice. Um, but being in DC public schools and being at a, at a struggling high school in a struggling neighborhood um, in DC and seeing the inequality and the, the, the complete sort of, yeah, the, the complete lack of equity uh, mm. was very both eye-opening and, and disturbing to me. And, you know, I wanted to, to do what I could to address those inequities and I, I knew that going to law school and building the, the skills and the tools and uh, you know obtaining the tools that would help me do that would be a, a, a positive thing that's how I ended up at law school mm. so it seems like that experience was you know a real turning point and you know prior to teach for America for your bachelor's you did you know study ethics so were there kind of like hints of sort of your interest in regards to things like equity and, you know, what is right, what is wrong throughout your, you know, as a college student, or was it really truly the Teach for America, which was, you know, the sole turning point in regards to your interest uh, becoming towards, you know, civil rights law? Yeah, no, certainly. So I, I, my major was ethics, politics, and economics, which is sort of an interdisciplinary major that really is at the end, at, at, at its core, political philosophy is, you know, um, it's, it's a fancy three word major, but really it's just political philosophy. And yes, I definitely all through college, I was very interested in political philosophy, ethics, and just figuring out, at least from a theoretical standpoint, right, the rules that we use to govern our society. And of course, I was shaped by many thinkers in college, um, and most notably John Rawls, who, um, you know, I think the, the concept, the philosophical concept that most resonated with me is the idea of the veil of ignorance and, mm -hmm. and the original position. And I don't know if you're familiar, but basically the idea is that, you know, um, 
you put yourself in the original position, which is behind this veil of ignorance. And behind mm -hmm. that veil of ignorance, you do not know um, what station in life that you will be born into. And mm -hmm. without knowing whether you're going to be the president of the U.S. or AZ or, you know, the, um, the DoorDash delivery driver or the, the, the criminal who's, who's on death row for murder, without knowing who you're going to be, how would you, what sort of rules and what sort of laws would you establish? What sort of principles would you um, lay down to govern society? And that to me, I think is, is one of the biggest reasons why I've gotten into the civil rights work that I do, because I think a lot of the rules that we have in our, in our society are not just and, and are not things that comport with what we would want you know, in other words, we don't have empathy for, generally speaking, for people who aren't in our position, right? I'm living a comfortable life right now, but I, 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 it was random chance to some degree that I'm in this position now. And, you know, if I were the poor, you know, jobless um, person with a disability, would I, you know, how would I want to be treated? And so, you know, I think that John Rawls, as a philosopher, political philosopher, um, was the single, I think, single biggest influence in terms of why I care about the rights of people and, and mm. people generally, and in particular, uh, communities that are marginalized and excluded. Yeah. You keep reading my mind, Wookie, because that was going to be my question, was which philosopher has influenced you <laughs> Yeah, and I, I dabble with uh, Rawls. I teach high school debate, so we, we occasionally look at, um, I'm not sure, and this might sort of be a segue into, uh, you know, talking a bit about Yale versus Harvard, but there's that uh, famous uh, book called Justice, right, by Michael Sandel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think in there he mentions guys like Rawls, and I mean, he, he hits all the big, you know, the big names, like Nietzsche and whatnot. Yeah, um, of course. That's a famous uh, course, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with Professor Sandel, and um, I, I took the Yale equivalent of that course. It's called uh, Moral, The Moral Foundations of Politics uh, with mm. Professor Ian Shapiro. And yeah, it's Locke's, Hobbes, Rawls, you know, everyone. You had this unique experience of being at both Harvard and Yale. I often sort of people put those two schools as the best schools, you know, in, in the world, essentially. And I should have asked Michael this. It was just a guess not too long ago. He went to both. So how, do, how does your experience differ with those two schools? I mean, I think it differs a lot, uh, mainly because the undergraduate experience and graduate school experience is very different and can, can be very different and was very different for me. Um, you know, I think in college, you know, at Yale, I had different motivations, I had different goals. Um, and it's just a different, it's just a different environment. And so it's really hard to, it's really hard to compare. But I always put Yale first, because I think your college experience is a much, the college years are a much more formative span of years than your graduate school years, I would say in general just because that's where you build some of your strongest friendships and that's where you're really figuring things out. Whereas when I went to grad school, I was already in my mid twenties and, you know, I already, I wasn't looking necessarily to make more friends or, you know, what have you. So I approached law school with a much, I don't know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I approached it differently than I would, uh, than I did uh, undergraduate. Um, and so that's, I think, partly why, that's partly why I, I, I'm much more loyal to Yale than I am to Harvard. I, I've attended the Yale-Harvard, the Harvard-Yale football game. Um, I had attended it consecutively for 10 plus years. Uh, I broke the streak uh, two years ago when we moved here and, you know, it became difficult to go back to the East Coast for Thanksgiving, uh, yeah. you know, Thanksgiving weekend. But I always wear my Yale gear. And I always sit in the Yale section. Wow. Um, and there was yeah. even one time when I was at Harvard in law school and the law student association signed up to shuttle students from Cambridge to New Haven on a bus for the game. And 
I wore all my blue Yale colors on a bus full of Harvard, you know, crimson uh, students. Yeah. And, you know, that was a fun experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with your answer. So I was, I was expecting sort of a pol- like a politician answer where you were going to say, well, they're different. And, oh, and no, no, was, no. But uh, it seems like you very much have uh, chosen, chosen your side there. And um, I, I understand what you mean about the formative years. It's, it's definitely, it's different. I think it sticks with you a bit more, right? Those years when you're 18, 19, compared to yeah, your you know, yeah. mid-20s. Exactly. And um, law school, you get to Harvard, you go to law school, graduate, and then you first go to DC, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I first actually was in Baltimore for a year. I was clerking for a federal judge. Basically, as a clerk, you are sort of the assistant to the judge and you help sort of draft opinions and uh, resolve motions and help with trial prep and, you know, trial issues and case management. And so, yeah, I had the opportunity to do that for a year uh, in, in Baltimore. And then I went the following year down, back down to D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. to start working at, at Quinn Emanuel, which is the law firm that I worked at before moving to Hawaii. Well, at, at this law firm, so, you know, you were involved in business disputes. The, the case about the oil spill, can you tell me a bit more about that one? Sure. So... Uh, so first of all, Quinn Emanuel is a uh, leading business litigation law firm. And one thing that sets it apart from some of its peers is that it only does litigation and doesn't do transactional, uh, you know, kind of contract work. I only did litigation in a wide variety of areas or issues. Um, but how I got involved, so this was the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill um, and basically that is a cluster F of mm. lawsuits because basically what happened after the oil spill, uh, was that everyone sued everyone. And I'm, I'm almost like, I'm exaggerating, but I'm, I'm really not the, yeah. the fishermen sued the oil rig, the oil rig sued the, uh, the servicers and the servicers sued the first responders and you know, the politicians sued BP and, it, you know, there are thousands of lawsuits stemming from that disaster. And what I was involved in was uh, representing some of the cleanup responders. So in other words, the people that BP had contracted to um, help contain and clean up the oil spill after the fact. And you know, mm. there are all kinds of claims, all kinds of disputes, and I'm not going to go into the details, but that was the, that was the one piece that I had the opportunity to work on. I feel very sorry for the, the federal judge who managed the, it's called a multi-district litigation, but basically um, there's a mechanism by which you can give a judge all the lawsuits that are filed relating to a specific incident or dispute. You often have these with like, um, uh, defective medical devices or things like that. And so this one judge in, in New Orleans or somewhere, I'm trying to remember exactly where, had literally thousands of lawsuits that were all in his court. And when you logged on to the docket, the number of entries was in the tens of thousands. And it would take minutes to just load up the docket and, and see what had been filed on the docket. So I feel very sorry for the judge who had to deal with that and is very likely still dealing with litigation today. And I also feel sorry for his clerk, his, yeah, his clerks, um, because they would have to dig through the docket and <laughs> manage, manage the whole litigation, so. Is that a, a trend now that things are more digitized? Because I was a, a mailboy actually at a law firm in, in Tokyo uh, back when I was in college for a summer. And I remember back then I was surprised at how much of the documents were still paper copy. This was back in 2007 or eight. So mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking now, like, obviously I, I like things digital being, you know, on kind of a digital native. Um, but now that you mentioned 10,000 documents online, I almost would prefer hard copies. 
<laughs> yeah, well, so a lot of judges will, uh, and a lot of courts will have rules about paper copies. And usually they're called chambers copies or courtesy copies. But the idea is that even though the courts prefer and require electronic filing, they still ask you to submit to the judge's chambers paper copies so that they don't have to print every last document, which is actually very convenient. Um, but certainly, um, at least in federal court, the, the norm is to file electronically and to manage cases electronically. Um, I think you, you'll see different things when it comes to state court practice. Every state, every court is different. Um, but obviously, the trend is to become digital. And for example, the state courts in Hawaii recently transitioned to sort of a you know, electronic preferred filing system, whereas even a few years ago, it was still, you had to bring your, your, hand, your, your paper copies to the court, to the court and, and file them in person. Um, so that's all changing. And now with the pandemic, I think a lot of other norms about, for example, court hearings and always doing those court hearings in person. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of judges, a lot of courts are more open to telephonic hearings and even yeah. to Zoom, you know, to Zoom-based hearings as well. And I think that's going to stick around or, you know, I think a lot of people are going to want to avoid having to fly across the country to spend 30 minutes talking to a judge in a courtroom, right? So I think we're going to see, I mean, I think society, we're all going to see huge shifts in how we live our lives post-pandemic. And we're already seeing that now in, in, in how we're using Zoom, for instance. But there, that's going to be another change, at least when it comes to... Yeah, that's very encouraging to hear. I know um, it's similar in the medicinal fields, right, where, you know, people are now if they had, you know, they used to have to go to the doctor or see the doctor for two minutes, you know, for a prescription, you know, they knew they were going to get now it's a right. two minute, which just makes so much more sense for, you know, all parties involved. Yeah, for sure. Telemedicine is, is huge. So if I'm not mistaken, you spend about three years there and then you make this shift way, you know, cross country, a little bit of Pacific Ocean uh, over to Hawaii uh, to the ACLU. So when you made this decision, um, was ACLU kind of always, you know, something that you were curious to get involved in, you know, given your background of, you know, interest in equity and justice and, you know, experience to Teach for America? Or is it something that was rather spontaneous? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, definitely all through law school and even before, uh, the ACLU was sort of a a, a, an exemplar, a, a dream organization. And of course, I had thoughts of one day working, having the opportunity to work at the ACLU. Um, but certainly at the time that I was making the transition, you know, I wasn't just focused on the ACLU. And the way it all, the way the transition came about, and really, I think this shows sort of why you can't really um, assume that your life is going to take a certain path or the path that you want it to take. Basically, in short, I, I nearly died. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with this incident, but I was um, hiking or I guess uh, trail running in the Rocky Mountains outside of Aspen in the Maroon Bells wilderness. And uh, long story short, I really got a bad case of altitude illness and um, it was on the extreme end of the spectrum. So I actually had um, high altitude cerebral edema and pulmonary edema and hyponatremia, hypoxia. And so I was uh, basically in a coma for several days. I was, uh, there was a 12 person mountain rescue team and a nighttime helicopter rescue mission that came out to save me essentially from almost certain death. Uh, up at altitude. And I, that was while I was at Quinn Emanuel working really long hours. And in the, you know, in the months after, as I was recovering at home, um, after I'd been discharged from the hospital, um, I really had a lot of time to myself to reflect on, you know, my life and uh, my career and all of that. And it made me realize and it, it prompted me to finally sort of make the jump away from 
the law firm to the, the true sort of civil rights work that I went to law school to do. You know, I knew, and you know, I think I really, really uh, enjoyed working at Quinn Emanuel. And, you know, I think in particular, what I liked about it so much was the opportunity to work on so many different, uh, really interesting legal issues involving antitrust, um, patent disputes. I learned a lot about patents and um, uh, and regular old business disputes as well. And then of course I had pro bono cases and I um, worked on a Fair Housing Act uh, lawsuit on behalf of undocumented Latino immigrants. So I really, I really appreciated all of that. And I think it was realizing that I, I, I was really passionate and excited about my pro bono work on behalf of the undocumented immigrants in a way that I wasn't you know, with some of the other types of disputes. And I, I realized, okay, I now need to make that transition because I may not be here tomorrow. And I'm, mm-hmm. I want to transition into an environment or a workplace where I can spend 100% of my time doing the, you know, representing undocumented immigrants, for, for instance. Um, and so as I was recovering, I spent a lot of time starting to think about not only moving workplaces, but also moving west. And that's also because I realized that um, given how close I was to, to dying, that I wanted to live somewhere where I had good access to the outdoors, live closer to the mountains, ironically, yeah. <laughs> live closer to the place where I almost died. Um, but, you know, I wanted to have a better sort of quality of life, work-life balance, And yeah, just being closer to nature. And so I started looking at places like Denver, Seattle, Portland, Oregon. Uh, I looked at, I considered the Bay Area. Uh, I also considered LA and and sort of that area. All places that have good outdoor access and also have thriving public interest and civil rights job opportunities. So I started Mm -hmm. applying to all these places. Um, And then I saw the job posting for staff attorney at the ACLU of Hawaii. And I thought to myself, this is a little bit further west than I was thinking. (laughs) Uh, But having traveled to Hawaii on vacation, sort of when we lived in Japan, for instance, and, you know, it being an ACLU position, I thought I would at least apply. And I applied and um, I flew out for the in-person interview and sort of and brought along my then girlfriend and now wife uh, to, to sample uh, w- what Hawaii living could be like. And we sort of fell in love with the place and, and, and uh, with the opportunity. And then, so that's how uh, we ended up here uh, just under three years ago. Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you talked about almost dying to, to moving to Hawaii. I mean, just to, you know, whoever's watching it to sort of, maybe give a little bit more of a context to, you know, your running. It's not like you were just sort of a random, it's not like you were going jogging for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, like most of us, right? So my understanding is, you know, you're quite hardcore with the running, including 100 mile races. So was that time when you were running up in the hills? Was that one of those long runs? Was it sort of like a riskier run? Or was it just, it was it more of a coincidence that, you know, the all these things in regards to high altitude affected you that, that afternoon. Yeah, it was a little, I mean, I think it, you could say it was risky. I mean, definitely some people would say it's risky. Others would say it isn't, um, but it wasn't, it was not a hundred mile race, for instance, it was just a training. I mean, it was really just an adventure run. You know, I, I like to use that term to describe very long, unusually long runs or unusually long days in the mountains, but that aren't, races that aren't you know that don't have any higher purpose Um, but I went with one of my best friends and we had planned this trip to do it's called the four pass loop and it's actually one of it's considered one of the most beautiful uh, trails in the continental United States Um, but basically it's about a 25 mile loop that goes um, and it's called the four pass loop because you go over four mountain passes um, but they're fairly high altitude, not not extremely high, but, you know, 12,500 feet. And mm-hmm. I guess for me, uh, living at sea level in D.C., 
Um, yeah. You know, the I guess I just didn't have the level of acclimation and, and whatnot. And so during the middle of that run, when we were smack dab in the middle of the second and the third pass, that's when I realized that the headache that I had was no longer just altitude sickness. It was getting much worse. And it was sort of um, like the worst hangover you can imagine where it was a splitting headache. It felt like my head was going to explode. And um, that's when I told my, I, I stopped and I told my friend, look, like this is getting a lot worse. And I'm now very concerned that it's going to be problematic. And so we decided to abort the run. But unfortunately, because we were between the second and the third mountain pass, and it was a loop, we yeah. had to cross over two more passes, regardless mm -hmm. of which direction we went in. And there was no other, there was no alternative escape route. And yeah. so that we made the decision to go back the way we came. Um, but because of my deteriorating condition, um, yeah. I moved slower and slower and the altitude just messed me up even more and more. And I, I started losing my vision. Um, by the end, I was basically blind. Like I couldn't see anything. And yeah. I had my friend sort of uh, carrying me. And I also lost my balance. And at, at some point I blacked out. So I had no memory of what happened, but we were so close to the trailhead. And, uh, but I just went completely limp basically. And so thankfully there were three hikers who were just starting their, their hike. Because most people do this trail over the course of three or four days and we were doing it in one day, but a group of three uh, cousins were doing their annual boys outing. Yeah. And they had just started uh, that night and my friend flagged them down and said, hey, can you stay with my friend? Uh, I'm going to go run and try and get help. And they thankfully agreed to stay with me. And one of them happened to be an EMT. And so as I was convulsing and vomiting and, and all of that, they would make sure I wasn't um, aspirating. And, you know, they, they kept me, they kept me warm with their sleeping bags and all that. So I have them to thank just as much as my friend for sort of saving my life. But yeah, that, uh, that is the kind of stuff I like doing. And, um, the, the, the sort of completely magical thing is that this occurred in July of 2016, uh, you know, July, uh, early July, 2016. Um, I had done ultra marathons, so ra trail races over the marathon distance. So 50 kilometers, uh, 50 miles and hundred kilometer races. Um, but I hadn't yet done any hundred mile races, but I had such a miraculous recovery that I did my first hundred miler in December. So uh, oh. five, five months, early December, yeah. five months after this incident where I literally built up from scratch. I mean, when I was discharged from the hospital, my mom, I, I had trouble carrying my backpack at the airport, you know, when we were flying back to DC um, because it, it like th it threw off my balance. My body was so weak. I mean, of course, they discharged me because they knew I would be able to sort of try to return home and recover uh, for the following weeks and months from home. But I was so weak at that point. And the first few weeks at home, I, I spent 18 hours a day sleeping. I mean, basically, I would sleep 14 hours straight. And then I would wake up, my mom would feed. So my mom stayed with me and, and helped me recover. So she would feed me. I would sit on the couch for a few hours, stare out the window. I couldn't look at a computer screen because my head hurt too much. So I couldn't watch TV shows. So I would just stare at the clouds outside my window and then I'd nap for three hours and then I'd go to bed early. And I was like that for two weeks or three weeks. And then, and then you know, eventually I felt like, okay, I wanna start trying to rebuild my strength and try to go to the gym and walk on the treadmill. And so th this was in August. And I ran a hundred mile trail race that took almost 30 hours of nonstop running in December <laughs> for four yeah. months later. So it's pretty mind blowing. You know, I, it's, I'm not like saying that to brag, but I just think, um, I, I think about this that year as just mm. an example of like the power of, of human resiliency and just, and also just how unexpected life can be. Right. It was so mm. unexpected that, that I would even be in that sort of dire situation. But then yeah. 
in that same calendar year, I did one of the hardest physical things and mental things I'd ever done in my life, which was to do a hundred mile trail race and, you know, run for 29 hours straight. So it's, it's, I mean, I, I think that was a very, I mean, that, that, yes, it was a life changing year for me and a pivotal moment in my life. And, um, I can look back on it now and, and chuckle about it, but I, I, I'm almost like grateful for the experience of nearly dying because it really, it really helped me put everything into perspective and helped me realize what matters in life and what doesn't. Wow. Yeah. That, that's an insane, as you said, it's a story that really exemplifies, you know, human resilience. And I feel kind of ashamed now that I often, when people talk about doing a full marathon instead of a half marathon, I go, you guys are crazy, you know, but <laughs> you were able to, you know, go from those conditions, uh, barely able to walk, with, you know, backpack on to, uh, and what you said 29 hours, um, this might be kind of a stupid question, but so you don't sleep or is there like, is there a time where people can take like an hour nap or something, or is it just straight up? I mean, you hours? can do whatever, you can do whatever you want. For most of these races, there's no requirement that you sleep or you stop. But of course, um, over time, you, you'll take breaks and sort of mm -hmm. um, every 20 miles or so, I would sit down for 10 or 15 minutes instead of just three minutes to refill my water bottle or what have you. So, you know, I made sure to do that. But as far as sleep, um, there was one moment during the race where I took a short nap because mm. I was literally falling asleep while running. Um, I was yeah. running with my pacer. It was about hour 24. And, and the yeah. problem is, you know, normally I had, I had experience, right, with staying up for long periods of time, given my law firm work and having pulled all-nighters. So it's not like the concept of staying up for 24 hours was new to me, but, mm. but it doesn't factor in the fact that for the five hours before the race started, I was also up because I woke up early, ate, you know, made sure to go to the bathroom, had to travel to the start. So it was really, I'd been up for like 30 hours straight at that point. And of course, 24 of those hours, I'm putting my body under a lot of stress and, and I had run through a whole night. Um, and it was already sort of um, sunrise, right, of the next day. And so... Um, I remember I was running with my pacer who was accompanying me during this night portion and I was starting to wobble and I, I didn't really notice, but there was a moment where I sort of like fell asleep while, while running and I almost hit my head against a tree branch. You know, I almost went off the trail and like knocked myself out. And so at that point I was like, okay, Jeremy, I, I, I need it. I need to close my eyes and just take a brief nap. And so we got to the next aid station. Jeremy sat me down in one of those plastic chairs and he filled, you know, he got me some food and whatnot. And he's like, okay, um, you get to sleep. I think, I think it was about 10 minutes. So wow. I'll let you sleep 10 minutes. And I put my head back. So I was on this chair, like a really uncomfortable, hard metal chair. I put my head back like this and I, Jeremy t told me I fell asleep within 30 seconds, like just wow. passed out within 30 seconds. And then 10 minutes later, he shakes me awake because the longer you sleep, the harder it is to pick your behind up and keep going. Yeah. And so, but that was the jolt. That was the, you know, and I got some coffee and that was exactly what I needed to be lucid for the last five hours of the run. And, and by that point, um, the sun had risen again for the second time. And so the stimulus, uh, you know, I know that sunlight can affect your brain and your alertness. And so it woke me up, I guess. So, mm. uh, but generally speaking, for a hundred mile race, people don't sleep. Um, I, I ideally would not have taken that nap, but I really had no choice but to take the nap. The other two hundred mile races that I've done, which are much more challenging uh, much more challenging weather, terrain, conditions, and, and took longer. Both of those races took longer. I didn't sleep at all. Yeah. Oh, actually, I did sleep for maybe five minutes in, in one yeah. race because I was so cold. And there, uh, this was in the Rockies, Colorado Rockies, believe it or not. I, I did a 100-mile race near Steamboat Springs, uh, which is a ski resort town in, in Colorado. But um, I was at mile 70. I was so dejected. It was so freaking cold. And there was an aid station by this lake up in the mountains, and they had a tent 
So you could be protected from the wind and the cold. And they had these, you know, stoves that were going and I needed to warm up. So I sat down in the chair and I was warming up and my pacer was feeding me. And I was like, I just, I'm just going to close my eyes for a little bit. Just let me close my eyes. So I, I think I took like a five minute nap, but um, yeah. Wow. That, that life of just those, those hardcore races, it's, unimaginable man as i was saying earlier i feel like the 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 marathon doesn't seem as as a artist of a of a task <laughs> well i think it really depends on how you're running the event um because i guarantee you the physiological strain that you're putting on your body when you're running a two hour and you know 210 marathon when you're really going all out I think the physiological strain on your body can be just as bad, if not worse, because it's a much higher intensity. So I don't, I don't sort of, I still run marathons and I still find that to race, to truly race a marathon, it's probably the, one of the, hard, the hardest things. Maybe it's just because I have really high expectations for how I want to run marathons uh, in general. Like I don't, when I, when I enter a marathon, I'm not there to finish it. I'm there to set a PR or run really fast. And so I'm really pushing my body a lot harder um, yeah. for a lot longer than in a 100-mile race where you're going a lot slower, but just for a very long time. A 5K can be extremely, extremely taxing as well, right, if you're going all out. So I don't, I don't really rank, right? I don't really like rank the difficulty or the challenge of the different events. I think it's just different. Mm. Well, you know, sort of pivoting from running to, you know, the sort of final topic about, you know, ACLU and the work you do now. I mean, I can see in your shirt, although it's slightly cut off, I think it says people, not prisons. If I deduce the other part, right? Yeah, okay, I did get it right. Um, you know, you're involved in, in various, you know, um, I, guess, I guess various parts of, you know, equity and human rights. And so for you in the past three years at the ACLU, what have been sort of the highlight? in regards to your time there when it comes to, you know, the work you do? There are a lot just because I'm very passionate about all the, all the things that we work on. Um, but I think probably what comes to mind, maybe because it's the most recent, is a lawsuit that we filed um, against several Honolulu Police Department officers and the city and county of Honolulu uh, on behalf of a 15-year-old boy who was being bullied by a classmate. And the, the classmate actually uh, forced our client into a fight after school one day. Mm. Um, so they fought. This was all on social media. It was, you know, caught on film. And it, but it just so happened that the, the, the classmate's father was a Honolulu police officer. And I guess for whatever reason, he got really upset about what happened and decided to take it out on, on our 15 year old client. And what he did was the following morning, he filed a sort of uh, complaint of criminal harassment that basically our client had criminally harassed uh, the officer's son. And then what he did was he, in his cop car, wearing um, you know, his uniform, he trailed our client's school bus to, camp to campus. And as soon as um, our client got off the school bus, he seized, arrested, interrogated, uh, handcuffed our, our client without giving him his Miranda rights, without notifying parents, without telling the school administration. Um, and then with the help of another police officer who he called to the scene, uh, they took him to the police station nearby and put him in leg shackles, fingerprinted him, booked him, and threw him into a locked cell, again, without telling anyone. And, mm. you know, I hope it's clear that this kind of situation should not have occurred because it presents a huge conflict of interest where a police officer is arresting the, even if it's, even if it's true, right? Even if it's true that our client had criminally harassed this officer's son, there's no way that it should be allowed or it can be allowed that the, that the, um, the person's father is the one to carry out the arrest. Um, mm. So we filed a lawsuit um, against the officers involved and the city and county of Honolulu. And 
you know, it's part of a larger campaign that we have right now to address police misconduct and to really reimagine what police should be doing in our communities, you know, that they mm. should be safeguarding our communities, not terrorizing innocent boys, right? This is a 15 year old kid. Imagine, right? Imagine he was in fr a, fr a freshman in high school when this happened. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I'm not going to go into the details of all the harm that he's experienced, but he uh, had to repeat ninth grade. He had to transfer schools because of all the, the, the knock-on effects of the incident. Um, mm. And it's been very, very disruptive to his, his education and to his life. And so mm. um, that's a highlight, in the, not in the sense that, you know, obviously we wish that that had not occurred, but, you know, mm. trying to take steps to hold police accountable um, to me is, a, is one of the highlights of my time here so far. And do you feel like these, you know, smaller cases add up to sort of a broader perspective in regards to things like prison reform, as well as just the justice system in general, you know, uh, and we see it already happening to a certain degree with things like the decriminalization of, you know, uh, people uh, who are caught, I guess, incidents related to marijuana, I think, in a, a majority of states. So do you sure. feel like it's a sort of uh, this broader picture that you guys as the ACLU are trying to achieve in regards to the, you know, justice reform? Yeah, so we, the ACLU has a lot of issues that we care about. Uh, one of the recent movements that we've been working, uh, working on is the decarceration movement, the movement to sort of end mass incarceration. And we in, a, in the United States we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world uh, relative to uh, our population. And it's not really, it's not by chance that this happened. It's the, the consequence of a uh, longstanding history of racism and uh, just really unjust criminal justice policies. And so um, this is actually part of the smart justice campaign that we have, which you know, we're focused on building people, not building prisons, right? Mm. And so the idea is we support decarceration um, through various mechanisms. And we are against sort of the natural impulse that we all have mm. to lock them up, to throw them in jail, to, you know, put, put someone in prison and then throw away the keys, which is the natural impulse that we all have when someone commits wrong. And of course, mm. we don't even agree that a lot of crimes, a lot of things that society considers wrong and subject to criminal punishment, we don't even agree that all of these things should be crimes. But mm. even, even assuming someone did commit a crime that we think is worthy of some kind of uh, consequence or punishment, um, it's not a life sentence. It's not, I mean, certainly not the death penalty um, and we just over incarcerate, we, we punish too hard. We don't think about, you know, the, the broader, co the, the costs of doing that, right? Because the more you punish, the harder it is for that person when they uh, return to the community to really reintegrate and really get back on their feet. And society has imposed so many barriers to what, what we call re-entry, which is when someone is returning to the community after being incarcerated. And mm. things like, you know, um, prohibitions on renting to people who have felony convictions or right, like job applications, having a box that requires you to disclose whether you have a conviction, uh, conviction records. And so mm. there are all these things that we don't think about that crypt that basically, you know, permanently make it very difficult for people who have some sort of involvement with the criminal legal system to get back on their feet, even after they've quote unquote, served their time or right, you know, um, done their done their time. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting about, you know, when it comes to cost too, I, I've seen various, you know, um, models in regards to cost for, you know, per prisoner, and that too is just incredibly inefficient, right? As a society, we're paying you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars per prisoner when 
everyone loses basically even even if you are someone who wants people behind bars it's it's just an incredibly ineffective uh, privatized system it seems like at the moment the end here i like to have the guests tell us what is coming up in their lives the next few months next few decades however ambitious you want to be in regards to those projections is up to you and yeah uh, please tell us what, what's what's to come in the next few years uh, as well as maybe even the next few 10 years so one thing at the aclu that is potentially on the horizon and We'll see if this ends up being a bad thing to talk about, but um, I'm in the process right now of applying to become the legal director of the ACLU of Hawaii. Um, basically, in short, uh, my current boss, who's the you know, current legal director, is, is leaving in January, and I've applied to replace him. And so if all goes according to plan, I, you know, I had my final round interview actually um, just yesterday, all goes according to plan, I'll be legal director and having the opportunity to sort of make these decisions about what we are doing here in the state of Hawaii uh, to protect people's civil rights and civil liberties. And I think that that is in some ways a, a dream job. Um, you know, I, I've absolutely loved being uh, the staff attorney here. And, um, but I think being a legal director would be, would be amazing. And so you know, fingers crossed that uh, that works out. But otherwise, you know, I'll continue to, to do the work, the good work here at the ACLU. I'll continue to field all the, the hate mail that we get on a regular basis. Uh, you know, we, we advocate on behalf of um, people experiencing homelessness. And that is a very contentious topic here in Hawaii. And the very common hate mail that we get is basically like, you know, um, if, if the ACLU wants to defend people who are homeless, you know, why don't they just, you know, put them in their office? Like, why don't, mm -hmm. why, why don't, why don't we just put, why don't, why doesn't ACLU provide shelter to the entire homeless community? Um, we get stuff like that. And, but that's, that's, that's what happens when you work to defend people who are marginalized and excluded. And um, I will do that no matter what, no matter what sort of flack I get from members of the public, because um, you know we have a duty as a society to protect everyone's rights. Mm -hmm. So that, that's yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so very Rawlsy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, and then other than that, I mean, honestly. In, in the next few years, I'd like to become a very good surfer. Um, during the pandemic, I bought my first surfboard here in Hawaii and have been surfing uh, multiple times a week. And I found it really, really rejuvenating, relaxing, meditative. In a few years, I'd like to be an expert longboarder. So, you know, there are different styles of surfing, but so sort of the more, mm -hmm. more, more classical style, at least in Hawaii, is to uh, ride on longboards where, generally speaking, you're just sort of going straight on a wave and you're not doing fancy carves and turns and all of that. And instead, you're focused on, you know, cross-stepping where you're, you're, you're moving up and down the board and maybe um, hanging. It's called hang, hang 10 when you put your 10 toes over the front edge of your board. Yeah, um, yeah over the nose of your board. But I mean, I don't, I don't think I'll ever be able to do a hang 10, but it'd be nice to be able to hang five in a few years, uh, which is what, you know, putting one foot over the nose of the, of the board. So that's, and then I think the last thing is, you know, I'm just excited. Uh, I got married this year uh, during the pandemic. We had to postpone our actual wedding, our big wedding party um, by a year. And who knows if that will even happen as well. But we ended up just having a private ceremony where it was just us, our photographer and our officiant. Our officiant uh, and we just went to a beautiful beach um, and trail on the west side of Oahu. Um, that was back in, in May. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the life we're building together here uh, in Hawaii. And she's a first year law student at the um, law school here, the Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii. Um, so she's also pursuing a legal career as well. 
Wow. So a lot going on there. Um, that's really cool. You guys are both studying law. So maybe you guys could both be at the same law firm. I don't know if that's a good or yeah. bad thing. I, I work no, with no, my no, wife. No. That won't happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. There's benefits and demerits to that. Um, uh, there's always a positive and negative. But yeah, I mean, good, good luck with, with the, the job, whether or not you get it. You know, it's, um, you know, I hope you continue to do the work you do. It's inspiring. And um, I would tell you to take it easy. With the running because you kind of scared us a bit in 2016 but <laughs> i don't know if that's going to make a difference um <laughs> but no, uh, you it know, won't. no it won't and actually one of the things that i'm planning to do in the near future um i was originally planning to do it next month but i don't think i'm ready for it but, but i want to run the entire perimeter of the island of oahu which is where honolulu is um it's about 140 miles um and i would run it continuously in one shot and try and break the, the current record. So um, I'm not in the right shape for it right now uh, because I haven't been training. I haven't been as motivated recently. I've been surfing a lot more, but that mm. is something I'm planning to do in the near future and it'll be very hard. Well, when that happens, definitely keep us posted. Um, that sounds a pretty cool thing. And um, yeah, I guess that concludes the uh, episode 55. That was Wookie Kim. Uh, thank you for being our guest. Thanks, Nick. It was, uh, it was an honor and it's good to catch up as well.